0: some of us at Valley Bible Fellowship in Boonville where some of the men decided we'd start praying before the service at the the church. And so one morning in probably October back then, Eric stopped by on his way in and picked me up and we stopped by to pick Troy up (laughs) woke him up. Troy comes to the door all sleepy-eyed in his bathrobe, and he said, we were supposed to turn the clocks back last night, guys. It's only you know, 6 o'clock instead of 7. And we're like, oh, no. <laughs> so to, uh, to save an otherwise wasted morning, uh, his wife made us waffles. And I remember that all these years. Um, waffles. So you know what this means today being that I don't know the end of daylight saving time or the beginning of it, I don't never know which. But we turn the clocks back an hour. So there's a whole extra hour for the preacher to go on. So buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> Do you uh, read that uh, post on Facebook about the Indian about daylight savings time. Yes, about okay. oh, only the white man would be silly enough to cut a cut the bottom of a blanket off and put it at the beginning of the blanket, and and it's re- referencing daylight savings time. And only well, white man says it's longer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I want to thank the. Uh, the assembly here once again for all the coffee uh, a couple weeks ago. I've been enjoying uh, working through it. Uh, this week, Alan and Elaine came over to uh, help me taste test monkey business coffee, <laughs> aka monkey poop coffee. <laughs> I think it's probably the best taste uh, cup of coffee I've ever had it was very good but I have to say it's right in a pretty close second with black rifle coffee who are uh, uh, they're pretty pretty darn close and I don't think that uh, anybody actually you know shot coffee beans through black rifles to make it I don't know why it got its name that way but um, it's just as good so whoever Gave me that one, but they've all been uh, very enjoyable so far. You know, I read a study recently that said that coffee consumption prolongs life. So at the rate I'm going, I'm living forever. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we are in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews. So turn with me to Hebrews and chapter 9. We will work through chapter 9 today. But before we do, I thought we would do a kind of a short... Yeah. Uh recap of where we've been. Hebrews was written, as the name implies, to Jews. We don't know specifically who the author is. We can speculate, but it was uh, certainly written to the Jews. It's very Jewish in its entirety. And it has a lot of meaning that uh, Jews would understand, even Jews today, without having a temple um, and it probably has um, slightly different understandings for us Gentiles, but either it was written to believing Jews who were uh, weak in the faith, and the writer was concerned that they may drift back into Judaism, or just some kind of legal uh, legalism, within Christianity, um, or it was written to to non-believing Jews. Um, In any case, um, it's clearly uh, Jewish in nature. And he starts off by talking about Messiah. That's really who the entire book is about. Um, And Messiah is greater than the angels because Messiah is is not a created being, but is the creator, and angels are uh, the created beings. Uh, Messiah is greater than Abraham. Abraham worshiped Melchizedek, the the, uh, king priest of the Most High God in Salem, um, or Shalom. Uh, the city of peace. Jerusalem is what it became. And because Aaron um, also worshipped Melchizedek, and we say, well, how could this be? Well, he explains that, that Abraham was um, the father of the Israel people. the Jewish people, and Aaron being of his line, looking forward, um, Aaron participated in the activities of his forefather, Abraham, and so if Abraham is worshiping Melchizedek, then pretty much everybody else that uh, is in Abraham's physical line, is also worshiping Abraham, including Aaron, um, who would be uh, essentially the first priest uh, set up by God um, under the law. Uh, Messiah is greater than Moses, Moses being a very faithful servant to God, and looked on uh, by the Israelites then and now as kind of the greatest person that ever lived because he gave them the law. Well, Messiah is greater than Moses because Messiah is a faithful son, and so that trumps a faithful servant. So he is not just a good servant, but he is more than that. He is a faithful son. Messiah, um, therefore, is a high priest forever. Uh, He is the high priest forever on the order of Melchizedek. Right? He has no beginning. He has no end. He's not from the... Aaronic line um, coming by way of heredity based on the law um, because he's from the line of Judah. Melchizedek was not from the line of of, um, Aaron because the whole lineage of Abraham had not even been Uh, foreseen here on earth yet at that time. So, uh, Jesus is, or Messiah is, a priest on the order of Melchizedek. He has a right to be high priest forever because he lives, just like Melchizedek seemingly lives forever. There's no recorded beginning for Melchizedek and no recorded ending in scripture. So uh, the fact that there is uh, a new priest dictates that there's a new priestly order, and the new priestly order brings in a new covenant uh, specifically for Uh, Israel and Judah, and yes, uh, the church participates in that in some fashion, uh, but it's not yet fully enacted because Israel is still, as a people, rejecting uh, Jesus as Messiah. One of the interesting things that that I uh, like about Hebrews is that... Um, in its Jewishness, it specifically brings out Jeremiah, and that Jeremiah prophesied that the old covenant would be uh, replaced with a new covenant, and God would would bring out a new covenant for Israel, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, it says, and it's specifically about uh, the Jews and and for the Jews, although we do get to participate in that. One of the other interesting things is that the writer of Hebrews tells the readers, the Jewish readers, to that that they have this understanding of who Messiah is built into their culture, but it's very rudimentary. Very basic in its uh, in their understanding of who Messiah is, and he he tells them to set that aside and move deeper into the things, and and that should be an encouragement to us to look at the things that we know from Scripture that are kind of built into Christendom, if you will, and set those aside and dig deeper, look deeper into God's Word, uh, and find out even more about what he um, what he's done for us what he's doing through us and what he is continuing to do for us in the heavenly realms so that's kind of where we've been in the book of hebrews in the first eight chapters so let's uh, set that aside for a moment and open with a word of prayer heavenly father we praise you for this gift of the book of Hebrews that you've given, not just the Jews, although it was written specifically for their understanding. We pray that you would give us the Holy Spirit's understanding to know how it affects us and interacts with us today, because in in your church, there is no Jew and no Gentile, and we are new creations in you. And we just pray that you would help us to uh, understand those things about this book that you would have us to um, to find important. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to start in the text in verse one of chapter nine. <clears throat> Remember we have a new covenant for Israel the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, even the first covenant, that is the the law that Moses gave them, the the first five books of the Bible, uh, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table of the bread of uh, presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain, was a second section called The Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a uh, gold, a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. There isn't enough time to go into them in his discourse here. The Holy of Holies, Kodesh uh, HaKodeshim, or Kodeshim the Holy of Holies. It was divided from the tabernacle with a thick uh, curtain that was several or many tapestries that were woven together into a thick wall. Some say it was about 11 inches or so thick. And so when Jesus died, uh, the, the curtain that separated Kodesh, Kodeshim, was rent. It was torn asunder, and uh, that's what Jesus did, is he gave us access to the Holy of Holies uh, by way of his death. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, uh, inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, Uh, the vessel of the law, it contained a few implements and artifacts that God wanted them to keep, knowing that they were in there, um, and having a um, special meaning for the Hebrews, having been delivered from Egypt, and having received the, um, the Old Covenant, all those things were there. Uh, The manna, wouldn't it be nice to know the recipe for manna, right? Jesus has that recipe. Uh, Jesus is the manna, in fact. Um, It's covered with a golden lid with cherubim, two angels, uh, with their wings extended forward and, and almost touching. It's called the mercy seat, the hilasterion, When Jesus judges the church, the individuals that make up the church, he will sit on um, the hilasterion. When Pilate uh, convicted Jesus, he was sitting on the hilasterion, even though he did not show mercy. That seat was called the mercy seat. So the author is reminding the Jewish readers of things they were very familiar with. His point is not to um, talk about the historicity of those things. There isn't enough time to go into that, he says. The importance is to understand that he's contrasting over the last chapter or so, the old covenant and all the things that are relevant to the Old Covenant with the New Covenant, right? What happened to the Ark of the Covenant? I'm sure that we can rest assured that it is not in some salt mine in Kansas, as Raiders of the Lost Ark would, would portray. A uh, great concept, though, you know, the federal government sucks it up and puts it in an archive somewhere, and there's where it's at, you know. Um, the book of Second Maccabees, which is a Hebrew um, book that takes place uh, between the end of the Old Testament and the 400, or during the 400-year period before the New Testament, begins, and uh, amongst other things, it mentions that uh, Jeremiah hid the old, the um, Ark of the Covenant in a cave in Mount Sinai and sealed the cave. That could be. It's uh, much of the book of Maccabees has held up uh, historically, um, so it might be. Um, But let's, in any case, continue on with verse 6. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing the ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. So, He's moved from really from the the tabernacle furnishings and talking about the lampstand and the, the bread of the presence and those sorts of things. And he's moving into the regulations involving divine service at, um, at the altar inside the Holy of Holies. The author clarifies that the Holy Spirit's intent here <laughs> is to communicate... The Levitical system, that old covenant, did not provide access for the believer, right? Only for uh, the priest, and then only the high priest once a year into that most intimate part of the temple, into God's presence. The believer didn't have access to the things of God, only through the priest. Now, much of Christianity has dismantled all of the the Jewishness out of uh, those things and then replaced it with Christian, in many cases, Christian abominations, um, replacing... That only the priest has access to God and the the believer must go through the priest to gain access to God and that sort of thing. So as long as the temple or the tabernacle was still standing, the way into holiness was still hidden from the believer, It was still unaccept, uh, unavailable to the believer. Verse 9. Uh, well, let's go back up to, to verse 8 a little bit here. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washing regulations of the body uh, imposed until the time of reformation, which is not Martin Luther's, you know, reformation that began when he uh, took a hammer and a nail and nailed his theses on the door of the church. No, um, it's the time when God begins his reforming work um, of what he had begun with the old covenant. So the sacrifices were illustrations only They were ceremonies that the Jews were required to do. The act of the physical acts of the sacrifices and that sort of thing did not bring righteousness. Those Jews who approached those in faith, knowing that they would not bring righteousness. But we're relying on God's provision and being obedient to his will, not being obedient and saying, we're going to do this and we expect you to live up to your part of the bargain, God. But rather saying, I I don't know why you have made me a Jew, but you have commanded that I do these things and put my faith in these things in you by way of these things, and, and that uh, would would bring some measure of righteousness for them. The animal sacrifices themselves did nothing to finish the issue of sin. Right? The, the animal sacrifices were just in place until the time when God decided it was time to finish up his... Um, work of bringing his son about in uh, the sacrificial manner. So the tabernacle layout, the furnishings, the sacrifices, all of that is to show that no one could get to God through this system. It was not available to the believer or anyone else. Verse 11. I have this whole next passage highlighted. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus sacrificing and uh, thus securing an eternal redemption. Okay. When the high priest entered the Holy of Holies once a year, it was representative of going into the presence of God. But Jesus entered the true presence of God the Father with his own blood, which is, um, he is a representative of mankind, right? Individually, he, he represents each one of us, but also representing each one of us Uh, as mankind, Jesus entering the true presence of God the Father with his own blood, right, and that provides eternal redemption for all. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify, for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So even though this is written to Jews about Jewish things, it has relevance to us as well, who are not Jews but are of the church. Nothing the Jews could do in God's tabernacle could cleanse them, could cleanse their soul. It could take care of them being ceremonially cleaned and that sort of thing. But nothing the Gentiles could do either would um, make us that way. No, no acts of good works or uh, anything else would um, bring the Gentile into righteousness. So the sacrifices of bulls and goats was important. It was instituted by God. In many, many, many ways, it was instituted to show that the Jews who were commanded to do that were not being made righteous by that. And in fact, no one uh, is being made righteous by the Jews' acts or by any acts unto ourselves. But Jesus, in his power, the power of the Holy Spirit, offered himself as the perfect lamb, and his blood offered to the Father can cleanse our conscience conscience and make us pure. It can clean our soul, if you will, and that's what he does. No acts that we do will do that because he's done it all. There's nothing left for us to do Except believe, and there's a question of whether even belief is his act in us. So he cleansed us from acts, it says, that bring death, right, so that we can be his sons and his ambassadors. Uh, here on the Earth, and in fact, in Ephesians, Paul talks about us presenting he he brought us about as the Church to demonstrate beyond to beings beyond our ability to comprehend um, his manifold wisdom, so there our response to him. In faith and our acts that are in response to that faith, not that they bring us to that faith or make us righteous, but that we respond by doing stuff for him that he's already prepared for us to do. Our acts of doing those things um, are a demonstration of his manifold wisdom beyond to beings beyond our comprehension it's interesting when it talks in this passage about um, cleansing us from from acts that bring death it's the Greek word ergon which means occupation we are occupied or preoccupied with trying to earn our own salvation, and bring about our own righteousness. Um, Jesus certainly died for me, but I have so much more I have to do to be able to make sure I can get to heaven. No, it doesn't work that way. We are justified by faith, not by works. And the works are our response to salvation. So my conscience now is clear, not because I've accomplished my own salvation, but because Christ Jesus accomplished my salvation on my behalf. So my conscience can now breathe easy and I have the ability to live at peace and at rest with God and myself. Don't turn there, but I'm going to read a couple verses from Romans chapter six. For one who has died has been seen, has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you, brother and sister, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. God's saying, I know my son, and I know that he is... Uh, righteous, and that he has died and will not die again. And he says, reckon yourselves that way. The old Mosaic law, the old covenant, the system of sacrifices and blood offerings and, and offerings of, of, um, you know, crops and first fruits and And uh, the products of those by way of the leavened bread and the unleavened bread and all those sorts of things, the the olive oil that was poured out on the sacrifices, all of that stuff didn't bring closure. Right. Those things were imposed by God on the Jews until he reformed it, until he brought reformation by way of his son, verse 15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, that goes back to Jeremiah 31 as well, Remember, the context here is very Jewish. He's talking specifically about the new covenant he will create with Israel, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Um, The sins that Carl commits are not under the old Mosaic covenant because I'm a Gentile. I was never under that covenant. But the sins the Jew committed under the law that God had placed them under, Jesus died to pay that ransom. And he paid to uh, pay the ransom that I owed as well, even though I did not have that, um, that burden of the law that he required of the Jews. It still condemns me. Right. But you and I, in the church, he died for us as he did for the Jews. And salvation is offered first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, it says. So his his um, death, burial, and resurrection were for all mankind. However, it was certainly first presented to the Jews. Um around Jerusalem, who witnessed him, and walked with him, and heard his teaching before and after his death, burial, and resurrection. So I would like to look at a couple of verses in Romans. We're going to go back to Hebrews, so stick a bookmark in there, and turn to Romans in chapter 2. Romans in chapter 2, and we'll pick it up in verse 12. And read this long paragraph. Uh, so 2.12, Romans 2.12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. He's talking about Gentiles. Gentiles. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Of course, we know that no one could live up to the law. When, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires they are a law unto themselves even though they do not have the law they show that the work of the law is written in their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So the Jews are under the law, but the Gentiles do know right from wrong, and the law will convict them as well. Skip down to verse 19 now. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light, whoops, I'm sorry, we want to go to 319, just didn't look right, go to the next chapter in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that is the Jews, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we are all condemned by the law, which is what the author of Hebrews has been saying. And what I've been saying up here this morning even if we Gentiles who are not under the law, because it exposes our sin. Okay. Now continue on in this passage, verse 21. But now, those two great words of the New Testament, I think it's Nuno Day. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's uh, righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen and amen. That word propitiation. Jesus was put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation means a placating force. It's an active word. It's not passive. It it means a placating force is something that um, satisfies righteous anger. God's righteous anger was satisfied by Jesus' death. His sacrifice, we we often just kind of want to minimize his sacrifice, right? Okay, he died for me. Great. Let's move on. He rose from the dead, and I can rise with him because of that. I am risen with him because of that already. And yet... (laughs) Propitiation, I mean, that's a strong, active word that he actively became the force that placated an angry God, a a rightly angry God. God was not happy with mankind and uh, carried that anger for a couple thousand years after the garden. And held it in abeyance, and he held men's sins in abeyance until his son could come and die for those sins. That is a merciful God. I suppose there's a few people that got struck down by lightning as soon as they committed some sin, but not many. If that were the rule rather than the exception, none of us would be here. All right, let's go back to Hebrews and finish up chapter 9. In verse 21 is where, no, 16 is where we left off. So let's read 15 because it's such a great, a great verse. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called uh, may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made the will must be established, For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the book I'm sorry, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, most, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. <sighs> Let's pause there for a minute, take a breath. The old Mosaic covenant could not take effect without the shedding of blood, he says. Right? Because without... The shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Let's pick it up in verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies in heavenly thing, uh, copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered into Kodesh hachodeshim, the holy places, the holy of holies, made with hands, uh, not into the holy places made with man's, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The tabernacle on earth is a copy or was a copy of the one, Uh, that's in heaven. And all the things had to be cleansed with blood here to make them pure here on earth. And Jesus appeared in the presence of God with his own blood on our behalf. And just like the high priest would enter the earthly tabernacle with the blood, um, he was there on our behalf with his own blood and now he says my blood has been shed once for all <laughs> let's go to verse 25 nor was it to offer himself repeatedly eh. you know what church do we know that participates in that worldwide uh, every day uh, taking him back to the altar. <clears throat> as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ Jesus, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Okay, it's appointed for man to die once, and then the judgment. (coughs) Christ died once. but then he rose from the dead, victorious. He was so perfect that even though our sin had been immuted to him, um, his perfection uh, brought about his resurrection. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all active participants in his resurrection. God resurrected the Son. Now, Christ died once, but he will appear a second time. Not concerning the issue of sin, because the sin has been dispensed with, right? Once for all. He's going to return to set up his kingdom and to reign into eternity. So this is the only place in Scripture, by the way, in the New Testament, Um, where the word second is used in relation to Christ's return, deuteros. It means second. It's used a few other times to talk about a second of something, but it's only used this one time as Jesus's return. We have to be very careful when we develop our doctrine or our theology around a single word. Um, we risk making this mountain out of a molehill. Um, I've had friends tell me um, with regard to a rapture, irrespective of the time, they have said, well, I don't see anywhere in the scripture where it talks about a third coming. So Jesus came once and he's going to come again. And yet... The Rapture is not a coming of Christ. The rapture is where he comes down, does not set foot on Christ, uh, on the earth, but takes us up from the earth. so it, it, that's not his second coming, irrespective of the timing when it occurs, it will occur and there is not a third coming to be had, but've you know people will take um, a word and sometimes run um, long and hard with it and like i said i've had friends say well i can't believe that there's any rapture jesus is coming and that's it uh, because i don't see a third coming of christ that's that's taking one word and running with it in any case paul makes it clear that i'm sorry the the writer here makes it clear whoever that was that um The law, the old covenant, cannot bring about righteousness. It never did uh, for the Jews. And because the um, old covenant condemns those who are under the law, the whole world is condemned because it reveals the sin of all mankind. And so even though we who were Gentiles, are not and we're not under the law it still is condemning and therefore uh, we can participate in the new covenant because of his shed blood where he entered the holy of holies in the heavenly places the the throne room of God the father and delivered his blood uh, as a propitiating force a placating force that satisfied God's righteous anger. Let's close in prayer. Amen. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your sacrifice that you offered when you gave your son. We, we look to his obedience um, in that he submitted to your will to be brutally executed uh, for our behalf once for all and lord we also know that that was a tremendous sacrifice uh, for the father uh, for you to give your son as well uh, because you are god in the father the son and the holy spirit we now uh, go out today and pray that you would Help us all to keep these things in mind, that we are not under the law, that the law in fact condemns us, and that Jesus is our Sabbath rest, that we should follow Jesus as a rule of life, because uh, he uh, did it all for us. It's in his great and glorious name we pray. Amen. Did you Amen.